Welcome to the American Academy of Dermatology's Dialogues in Dermatology podcast series. This podcast is certified for CME credit. For credit information, visit Dialogues in Dermatology at aad.org slash OLC. The information in this CME activity is for continuing education purposes only. It is not intended to establish a standard of care and is not meant to substitute for independent medical judgment of a health provider relative to the diagnostic, management, and treatment options of a specific patient's medical condition. At the conclusion of this learning activity, listeners should be able to identify risk factors for uncontrolled pain in dermatology surgery patients and develop a treatment algorithm for pain in surgical patients. Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Although dermatologists only write a small fraction of opioid prescriptions in the U.S., studies show pain management is still a relevant topic in our field. Up to 7,000 patients will continue to use opioids one year after their initial prescription for a dermatologic procedure, and it is estimated that dermatologists prescribe 500,000 unused opioid pills per year. This is of particular significance to those with surgical practices who almost exclusively make up the top 1% of prescribers. Attempts have been made to provide guidelines on the necessity of opioids and what amount should be given after specific dermatologic procedures, but much is still left up to the provider's judgment. In this podcast of Dialogues in Dermatology, Dr. Slovena Puglisi and Dr. Brian Carroll discuss strategies for evaluation and management in patients with acute and chronic pain in the perioperative period. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Slovena Puglisi, and I'm a clinical assistant professor of dermatology at Stanford. I have the distinct pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Brian Carroll, who is an MD, PhD, and associate professor of dermatology at University Hospitals of Cleveland and Case Western Reserve University Medical Schools. Dr. Carroll specializes in cutaneous oncology and Mohs micrographic surgery. Today, we'll be discussing pain management in dermatology. Dr. Carroll, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, I'm very excited to talk about this topic. It's an incredibly timely one. And I wanted you to just open with how you became interested in this topic and why it is so relevant to us to discuss today. So my interest in anesthesia has been for the last 20 years. My PhD work was in anesthesia. This topic that we're going to talk about today and opioid prescriptions and how we can improve the safety for our patients is most pressing because of this confluence of pandemics where we've had 20 years of this increasing pandemic of opioid deaths in the U.S. and the stress of the COVID pandemic in the last few years has uh, uh, increased our numbers such that November we had a record number of deaths in the U.S. with over 100,000 people dying from opioid overdoses in the preceding 12 months. And that's double what we were at two years ago before the COVID pandemic. Wow, that's shocking and also so incredibly sad. What do we know about opioid prescribing in dermatology? Well, we know in dermatology that we've been doing some good stewardship for the last 10 years. We've had a message at our national societies encouraging decreased prescriptions for most dermatologic procedures. Just recently, we had a Delphi process out of UT Southwestern, Donegan, Srivastava, and 
Raj. In that study, we see that there's not a single recommendation for opioid prescriptions that's universally agreed upon across the experts. So it's important to read that for its two meanings. The first meaning is we should not be giving opioids to a single demographic of patient universally. But the second is that there's lack of agreement, which means we should be giving pain support for our patients and opioids can be a part of that. It's just a very difficult topic to identify the individual that needs to get it every time. So knowing the treatment algorithm and knowing how best to identify those patients that will need it is a burden of education that we have as dermatologists. So it sounds like a very personalized approach is necessary and there, there are no clear-cut guidelines as in, you know, every patient with X diagnosis or X procedure would need opioid pain management. Correct. It's not simple. And uh, (laughs) uh, their perception of pain is important. So it's something that we need to take each patient individually and identify uh, what's best and what's worked for them. So let's say in the ideal practice environment, in the ideal clinical setting, how would you approach a patient who's about to have a procedure to figure out the best modality for pain control? So I have an algorithmic approach. So I start off with thinking about the procedure from the preoperative, determining their previous experience. So supertentorial expectations of the patient have been shown to be related to their need for peri and postoperative analgesia. So if they come in saying that the dentist has always been butchering them since the childhood and they are very apprehensive about the needles, they're very apprehensive about this experience, all of that in their head is going to come out and be a part of their perception of discomfort during the surgery. So I asked the simple question, have you had problems at the dentist being comfortable? And I find that that has a pretty high yield. In our studies in which we've asked most patients and dermatology patients for risk factors, the, the water's a little muddy. Our studies are a little bit conflicting. We don't, again, have a clear answer if it's always the youngest people, if it's always the people getting a flap, there's just from that data, some general gestalts that, you know, larger flaps and younger patients, there have been trends to suggest that they are going to have a harder time being comfortable and they might need some layering of your approach to keep them comfortable during the peri and post-operative period. Right. So it sounds like there are some ways of asking some basic questions that could at least give you an idea of how a patient's going to tolerate a procedure and the pain involved, or the perception of the pain involved, I guess would be another way to phrase it. Right. And you can, we've actually, in one of my studies, reinforced what's been seen in other literature, which is asking them on the numerical rating scale of Mm -hmm. zero to 10, what is your expectation for pain today? If they expect a pain of four or greater, then they are identifying themselves as someone who will need something more. So traditionally, when you ask people for the first time to think about this concept of what would you think would be the level of pain that you would want additional intervention, your first thought is, oh, we should think about the eights, nines, and the tens. Mm -hmm. But think about it personally, we all want to be at zero. And so it makes more sense in the context of what would we want? We would want to not have pain. And in that setting, this transition from three to four 
tends to be the one that helps self-identify again, those that are going to have a harder time being comfortable. So most people say, hey, you know, it's going to hurt a little bit, one or two. And then the pain catastrophizers, they tend to say, oh, it's, I expect a 10. And if they expect a 10, their experience might not be a 10, but their experience is going to be higher than that cohort that self-identifies as being, my expectation is three or less. Yes. Okay. So once you have this information, how do you approach pain control during a procedure? So next we start thinking about the procedure. And so you're looking at what interventions have worked for them in the past. So you can identify patients as being needle phobic and you can use mechanical vibration to help hide the needle and reassure them that we have the studies that show mechanical vibration has been something that works for the majority of patients and that a significant number of your patients report no perception of a needle stick at all with vibration. So I would say it's about 50% of patients will say, when are you going to give me the needle if you've introduced the needle in conjunction with mechanical vibration? Others, if they're a 10 in their pre-surgery expectation, we'll give them ibuprofen and Tylenol before the surgery and just start anticipating that they're going to need more, getting the pharmacokinetics, loading doses in to help them be maximally controlled for both the surgery and after. Perfect. That's very useful information. And then how do you usually counsel patients about what to expect after surgery in terms of pain and some methods for pain control after surgery if needed? Right. So our field has moved to accept ibuprofen and Tylenol staggered to be every three hours to be a very successful um, algorithmic approach to to pain management. Uh, That's been shown in our studies uh, in dermatology to be more successful than opioids in controlling the pain that we see in most surgery. So that's my standard recommendation is Tylenol and ibuprofen. Again, going to those patients for which I have anticipation that they're going to need more, that's when I start thinking about opioid prescriptions. Mm -hmm. And for me, I prescribe one patient every six months, I think is probably my current average. And it tends to be a patient who has pretty much a large, painful lesion. So my most recent opioid prescription was for a young woman with a large melanoma excised off her foot. And ibuprofen and Tylenol were helping her a little bit, but in that first four days, her pain was, it's a very tender spot, uh, a lot of nerves, a lot of swelling. And for her, we gave her Oxycontin, 12 tablets, and had her follow up the next day and Mm -hmm. gave her very close support, um, told her the, you know, rest, ice, compression, elevation, but everything was algorithmic. So the, the narcotic never replaces anything. The narcotic is always just the, the seventh thing that we added on to her pain regimen. And she, after the fourth day with that counseling, that support was still on ibuprofen, still on Tylenol, but she was no longer re- requesting or needing any of the, the opioid. Got it. So it's a very layered, very algorithmic approach and sounds like you know, very sparing the use of opioid medication, even for the, you know, the post-surgical patients where we often will encounter pain the most in dermatology. Right. We have lots of studies that show the, the amount of 
uh, narcotic that you prescribe is directly related to long-term abuse. So the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2017, 2018 had a study in which they looked at emergency room prescriptions and they divided the emergency room physicians into four cohorts that were low to high prescribing patterns. And they saw that there was a, a linear correlation between low and high and subsequent long-term opioid abuse. That's very interesting. So even from just these limited encounters in the emergency department, that could, uh, the high prescribing rates could potentially lead to addiction in the future for a patient. Yep. It's, it's similar to us in that we have uh, sometimes this episodic experience with someone. We're not a longitudinal provider of their care at times, but that one prescription, if you give 30 days instead of just three days, that could impact their long-term risk of uh, addiction. Yeah, that's why I really appreciated how you talked about your one patient example and having the really close follow-up with her um, just to make sure that you were able to touch base and provide reassurance and, and check in on the pain so that it wasn't a medication that was discontinued because expectation was that it would be needed for longer. So yeah, that's a really wonderful and pragmatic approach. So can I ask you a little bit, what do you do if you encounter this case where you have a patient coming in that has chronic pain and or is already on an opioid prescription for another reason? Yes, yeah, so that's an excellent question. And my answer would depend on the region that people are living because the CDC has been putting into effect these laws where they've been supporting these laws across different states on opioid uh, prescriptions. And I, where I'm at, have uh, several layers of protections that help providers and patients avoid excess prescriptions. And here, the opioid contract is an important part of that relationship for the chronic pain patient who has an existing prescription from a chronic pain specialist. So I have befriended the chronic pain specialist here. And mm -hmm. if we do have someone who's coming in, I'll give them a call and I'll tell them that this is something that I expect is going to not be handled with our standard approach and that I'm thinking of a need for opioid is going to be there. And understanding that the chronic pain specialist is the one who manages that prescription. So therefore, I can only make the recommendation to them and they will, with their pain contract, put an exemption in with their patient. And there's a clear communication between me, the patient, and the chronic pain specialist. In a previous uh, state where I was at, this pain contract was so strict that if a patient was given a 30-day supply mm -hmm. and they called at 29 days saying that they had uh, uh, run out and they had violated their agreement, it resulted in the patient being terminated from the healthcare institution. So not just the one provider, but it was a blanket statement across the institution and knowing these regional differences is going to be important on our part to make sure that we don't interfere with some of these safety mechanisms that are being put into place for the safety of the patients and to help protect us as providers for 10 years ago when we used to have a, uh, you know, patients saying that they had never seen opioids before. Mm -hmm. And they were going and telling that story to multiple physicians and collecting prescriptions. So it sounds like there are definitely um, many safeguards in place currently, but they do vary by state. So it's important to be aware of what your state-specific laws are. Correct. Yeah. Is there a centralized place to find that information? The CDC, CDC? Yeah, the, yeah, the CDC has a very robust resource for talking about state-specific laws. Perfect. 
And I, I think that most, as part of that support, uh, most states are linked to that CDC page. And so you can go and see what your state's reporting requirements are and the other laws that are state-specific. Okay. That's very helpful. Thank you. So Dr. Carol, let's say that you see a patient for surgery and then they call you later that evening and say that they're in an excruciating amount of pain. How do you triage that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we don't get that call often, but when we do get that call, most frequently out of control pain is seen in people who are not complying with our uh, recommended analgesic regimen. And one of the ways that we've decreased that call is adding a table to the first page of our wound care sheet that has the times written in it by our nurses before their discharge. They say, you've been given this Tylenol and ibuprofen at these times, and your next dose of Tylenol is going to be two hours from now. And that table is something that I feel has been part of the reason we don't get called as much. But when the patient does call, most frequently I'll ask them, so what have you taken? And they'll say, well, I haven't taken anything since I saw you at 11. And I'll say, and it's currently 8 p.m. And what did our wound care sheet? And they'll look at the wound care sheet and they'll say, oh, well, I guess I didn't take the Tylenol or the ibuprofen. And we say, well, it, it's something you can take now. And I'll call you back in 45 minutes and we'll see how you're doing. And giving them that follow-up in 45 minutes helps them know that you're going to be with them. And nearly universally, you call back and they're feeling better. Sometimes you occasionally have the patient who says that they took all the pills, but they did move the refrigerator for their daughter after their surgery. And uh, you just have to reinforce again that, you know, rest, ice, and uh, the basic things you should do to uh, make yourself comfortable are key. And it is once every year or two years that it's someone that we didn't anticipate their opioid needs. So it does not happen very often that I need to be calling in Oxycontin or Tramadol or something. So it sounds like just by being available, reminding them of what the timetable is like, the schedule of taking the ibuprofen, Tylenol, and you know, being available and walking them through it seems to be incredibly helpful for your patients. Yeah. I think the relationship is very important. I think them knowing that at the beginning of the day, when you tell them, and they say, you know, Tylenol and ibuprofen aren't going to work for me, they don't work for my headache. And you tell them, no, 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 the studies show that this works for this type of pain. And the acute pain from this surgery is going to be different than the chronic pain of your back or of your headache. Mm -hmm. And uh, this different type of pain, it's going to work. And then you know, reinforcing that message and just being with them and that, that the relationship is important for getting them to buy in. Yeah, absolutely. And then can you tell me for what your doses of the ibuprofen and Tylenol that you usually recommend? For Tylenol, we have a split. If they're over 60, they should be doing a max three grams a day. Below 60, it's four grams a day. And for ibuprofen, we do 400 per dose independent of any other. So it's everyone gets the 400 per dose. And so we divide that up in the below 60-year-old. of It's every six hours. So it's one gram every six hours if you're below and 750 if you're over 60. Right. Doing this over audio, does that just get confusing? <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I was going to say, I'm glad you have a, a time. We have a table. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, if you think about it just as you're, you want to make sure you stagger the doses so that the high point of one is the low point of the other. So they're dosing every three hours. 
And you don't need to do OBGYN doses of ibuprofen. You don't need to be doing 800 or 1200. 400 is enough. So two tablets. And the two tablets of Tylenol, two tablets of ibuprofen tends to be an easy number for them to remember. Okay. And is there a certain amount of days that you usually recommend taking this regimen or how do you counsel your patients on kind of when to stop it? Uh, so I, I like to tell people about our literature in which we see that 90% of our Mohs patients need analgesic the first day, 50% the second day, 10% the third day. And I, I set the expectation that they're going to get better each day. And that everything should be, if it's the pain's always decreasing, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I tell them to take off that they just they can stop the ibuprofen and continue Tylenol, or if, if they prefer the ibuprofen, yeah. it's basically you don't take off both of them at the same time. Right. You do them scheduled for the first 24 hours and then you wean off slowly. That's very helpful. The super practical tips. Yeah, I think it's going to be really useful for our listeners today. Excellent. So Dr. Carroll, before we wrap up, is there anything that you wanted to mention that we didn't have a chance to touch on yet? Any last minute advice or um, guidance for dermatologists? I would just want to highlight for everyone that despite this opioid pandemic that has impacted so many lives, what we do for our patients can be very uncomfortable. And the push to be good stewards of narcotics doesn't mean that we should abandon our goal to keep people comfortable. So things may be a little bit complicated in understanding what algorithm is needed for your individual patient, but addressing their pain and doing no harm first is still a vital responsibility for us dermatologists. Doing that with a responsible approach that doesn't increase their risk of opioid abuse, I think we can do both. Yeah. Thank you. It's a really important message. And I think you've kind of armed us with a lot of really great information as to how we can control pain as needed without opioid use, but that there are some great guidelines in place by the CDC and safeguards available now for the patients who do need it. They want to be really respectful of the pain that they have. Thank you so much for having me here today. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. According to Dr. Carroll, the first step in a successful pain management approach is screening patients prior to the procedure to determine who is at high risk for pain intra- and post-operatively. Studies have varied in their conclusions, but some risk factors for increased post-operative pain include younger age, flaps and grafts, history of pain or use of pain medications, and multiple procedures on the same day. Screening tools such as the Wong-Baker face scale can be used when asking a patient how much pain they expect during and after the procedure. In addition, Dr. Carroll states a simple question such as, have you had problems being comfortable at the dentist before? Can provide insight into how much difficulty a patient may have tolerating a procedure. Once you have determined a patient's need for anesthesia, Dr. Carroll recommends taking a layered approach beginning with the intraoperative pain control. If a patient indicates concern over the pain of a procedure or expresses fear of needles, vibration can be used while administering local anesthesia to reduce the sensation of inserting the needle. Another helpful strategy is having the patient pre-medicate with acetaminophen and ibuprofen, which also has the added benefit of serving as a loading dose for post-operative pain control. Other strategies for reducing intraoperative pain include application of ice prior to injection, buffering the lidocaine to raise the pH closer to physiologic, and psychologic techniques such as distraction with music or videos. 
A multimodal, layered approach is also helpful in managing post-operative pain. Dr. Carroll recommends alternating Tylenol, 1,000 milligrams, and ibuprofen, 400 milligrams, every three hours on a schedule in all of his patients without contraindications, combined with a physical pain reduction method such as applying ice, resting, and elevating the surgical site to reduce swelling. In fact, a randomized control trial in 2011 found this regimen superior to 30 milligrams of codeine every four hours in reducing pain and complications after Mohs surgery. The vast majority of dermatology patients can be managed without opioids with these strategies. Another important component of a layered approach is education. Some ways Dr. Carroll uses education as part of a pain management strategy are by discussing the post-operative pain plan before surgery to address any patient preconceptions, providing detailed post-operative instructions with a detailed schedule of analgesic dose and timing, as well as providing after-hours clinic contact information. Dr. Kale acknowledges that there are still some circumstances where judicious use of opioids may be necessary and share strategies to avoid prescribing in excess of what is needed. It is important to continue a layered approach to pain relief, as mentioned above, with acetaminophen, ibuprofen, and physical modalities while using opioid medications only as an adjunct. In addition, close follow-up in clinic, even as soon as one to two days postoperatively, can be helpful to reassess the patient's pain and factors that may be exacerbating it. This also provides reassurance for the patient because knowing their pain will be responded to quickly may help them feel they are not alone. Reducing the number of opioid prescriptions written, as well as reducing the length of each prescription, are two of the most important things dermatologists can do to be good opioid stewards. A study in the New England Journal of Medicine found a 30% increase in risk of long-term opioid use in patients treated by high-dose intensity prescribers and high-frequency versus low-dose intensity and low-frequency prescribers. Finally, Dr. Carroll and Dr. Puglisi discuss approaches to managing post-operative pain in patients with chronic pain who are under the care of a pain management physician and may already be on chronic opioids. In these situations, many patients will have contracts with a pain clinic. If a patient receives pain medication outside of their contract without an exemption, it can result in discharge from the clinic. For this reason, it is important to reach out to the physician managing their pain control and discuss a plan prior to surgery. It is usually best to let the physician managing their pain long-term have the final decision on whether to grant an exception to their contract and increase their opioid prescription short-term for surgery. Another useful resource is your state's scheduled prescription monitoring system to prevent overprescribing opioids to a patient also receiving these medications from another provider. Monitoring systems vary by state, and not all states have their own monitoring system. The CDC website is a reliable resource to learn more about the laws and systems in place in your state. Dr. Carroll closes the interview saying, Addressing the patient's pain and doing no harm first is a vital responsibility for us dermatologists. With the above strategies, it is possible to treat your patient's pain adequately and responsibly. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.